Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 453. We got David Epstein. He's talking about range and why generalists often triumph. So learn one, how focusing on short-term improvement can undermine long-term development. Two, pro tips for breaking through your learning plateaus. And three, the benefits of becoming a jack-of-all-trades. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep453. Now, here's David's story. David Epstein is the author of the book Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World, and the top 10 New York Times bestseller, The Sports Gene. He was previously a science and investigative reporter at ProPublica, and before that, a senior writer at Sports Illustrated. His writing has been honored widely, and he's got his master's degrees in environmental science and journalism, and is reasonably sure that he's the only person to have co-authored a paper in the Journal of Arctic and Arctic and Alpine Research, while also being a writer at Sports Illustrated. So thanks to David for spending some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. It's a trying time that challenges all of our basic assumptions. However, one thing that brings us all together is our common humanity. Now more than ever, teams must come together and work together to solve big challenges. And Trello is here to help. Trello, part of Atlassian's collaborative suite, is an app with an easy-to-understand visual format plus tons of features that make working with your team functional and just plain fun. Teams of all shapes and sizes and companies like Google, Fender, and even Costco all use Trello to collaborate and get work done. With Trello, you can work with your team wherever you are, whether it's at home or in an office. No matter what device you're using, computer, tablet, or phone, Trello syncs across all of them, so you can stay up to date on all the things your team cares about. Keep your workflow going from wherever you are with Trello. Try Trello for free and learn more at Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O.com. Trello.com. Here is David. David, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm excited to dig into this stuff, but first I want to hear about your work as an ecology researcher in the Arctic. I studied geology and astronomy in college, and afterward, I, I worked in a plant physiology lab, and, and that led to me living in the Arctic in the far north of Alaska, a place called Tulik Lake, where I was basically studying um, the radiation that plants give off uh, in an effort to sort of help try to understand how the carbon cycle might change as, as that area warms and the permafrost melts a little because most of the ground is frozen there. So when there's melt, a lot of nutrients are liberated and it can cause like major changes to, to the plant life, which can cause changes to the carbon cycle. Intriguing. And so <laughs> how long were you there and what was life like uh, up there? Yeah, I was basically there for, well, you couldn't be there a lot of the year because you couldn't get supplies. So you could only really be there for like half the year, basically. I loved it, actually. So it's technically a desert, and I love deserts because even though it's lush on the ground, the air is cool enough year-round that there's not much atmospheric demand for water, so you don't get much rain, even though there's a lot of fog and it's lush on the ground. And so all the plant life is really low to the ground. And so in the middle of summer, when it's when it's basically light all day, and you're sort of seeing this the sun go down and just come right back up and all the plant life is low, you can really see really far and, and make for some great hiking. And I, I thought it was beautiful. Some people felt it was it was desolate who were up there, but 
but I loved it. Well, yeah, I'm curious if that isolation can serve as just amazing, creative, energizing time or like I am going insane. I'm more on the creative energizing side. And I think, you know, like with this, <laughs> when I asked after my first book, people would often ask, how did you write it? And I, I didn't really know how to answer that question because I'm not really sure. You know, every project is kind of different. And I asked my wife once and she said, I asked her, you know, how did I write it? And she said, you went upstairs and came back down two years later. <laughs> and so I'm pretty good at, at spending time on my own uh, for projects and being quiet out in the expanse of nature is definitely, definitely more creative and invigorating for me than, than a feeling of isolation. Oh, cool. And you've, you've recently channeled your creative energies into another opus, uh, a grand tome I'm excited to talk to you about. So uh, maybe why don't we start with some of the most fun tidbits in terms of what would you say is perhaps the most surprising and fascinating discovery you've made when putting together your book range? For me, it was this idea that there are things that you can do that cause really rapid short-term improvement that can somehow they can systematically undermine your long-term development. So to, to that point about surprising, I'll mention the the study, the single study that was probably, it's certainly one of the most surprising in the book to me was this one that was done at the US Air Force Academy where they had a setup that you could, you would never be able to recreate in a lab because basically they would get in a freshman class, you know, of whatever, a thousand students or some hundreds of students. And those students all had to take a sequence of three math courses. So it was calculus one, calculus two, and then a, and then a third course. And they were randomized to calculus one to a professor and then re-randomized for the second course and then re-randomized for the third course. And they all take the same test. So these researchers recognize that this was a, an excellent natural setup for studying the impact of, of teacher quality or of teaching. And so the finding of this study was that the professors who were the best at promoting contemporaneous achievement, that is, whose students overperformed on the calculus one test the most compared to the baseline characteristics they came in with, those students then systematically underperformed in all the follow-up courses. So the professors whose students did the best in calculus one, they rated those professors the highest, then went on to underperform in future classes. And what the researchers concluded was that the way to get the best results on the calculus one test was to teach a more narrow curriculum that involved a lot more what's called using procedures knowledge, where you learn how to execute certain procedures and algorithms, and you don't learn more of what's called making connections knowledge, where the, the curriculum is broadened and you're forced to kind of connect types of, of, of concepts and learn how to match strategies to types of problems as opposed to just execute procedures. And so when they moved on into these other courses, those students who had the more narrow curriculum were systematically undermined. And, and that's sort of one of the themes that runs through range that the things you can do that seem the best in the short term sometimes under term undermine long-term development and i thought that was just an amazing display of that in an amazing study wow so it's sort of like the items that were being uh covered on the final test it's sort of like yeah he drilled them real good you know yeah. over and over and over again and thoroughly but sort of at the expense of getting some broader conceptual understanding of how this the math number calculus stuff is working I guess more more globally. Right. And that's what they then would need. That's what would then help them kind of scaffold later knowledge. So they, they didn't do as well in those other classes. And and what's really I mean, first of all, that was just a deeply counterintuitive 
finding to me, yeah. but, but also, so I remember, for example, the professor out of a hundred whose students I think did fifth best on the calculus one exam, and he got the sixth best student ratings overall was dead last in what the, the researchers called deep learning. That is how, how his, how his students then did in the follow on courses. And so that's really kind of worrisome. The fact that a lot of these strategies in that chapter four of range is about these learning strategies. And a lot of those strategies cause the learner to be more frustrated, to not do as well in the short term, and to rate the person teaching them worse. So that's kind of worrisome because it means these professor ratings may not be a good indication of what someone's learning. Their own assessment of their own learning in the short term may not be a good indication either. So that's, I think, something that's important to be aware of. And so I'd be intrigued then to correlate that if we were to some, draw some parallels into the professional working world in terms of, of how might we be shooting ourselves in the foot if we're trying to, to master a, a certain narrow domain of work. Yeah. So let's say, so let me give another example that came out of the research. So that, that I think relates to this. So in this one study, people were playing the role of basically simulations of naval officers, essentially, and they were being trained to respond to types of threats based on cues. And one group would practice threats where they would see a certain type of threat again and again and again and again, and they would improve and learn how to respond to it. And then they would see the next type of threat again and again and again and again, and so on. The other group would get all these different types of, of situations all mixed up and that's called interleaving. And that kind of training is often more frustrating. It slows down initial progress. The learner will, will say that they didn't learn as much and all those things. And then both groups were brought back later and tested on situations they hadn't seen before. And in that scenario, the interleave group performs much better than the other group because again, they're being trained to sort of match strategies to problems as opposed to just how to execute procedures. And I think that goes for anything we're trying to learn. I think our inclination is usually to pick up a new skill and do it over and over and over when really we want to vary the challenge a lot early on so that you're building these broader conceptual skills. And not only do you want to vary the challenge, but I think when we think about, at least in, in my life, the sort of formal professional development that I've been exposed to, as opposed to kind of the informal professional development that I do on my own, has always come in a way where it's like, okay, here's the topic. Uh, you're going to learn this topic, and then you move on from it forever. And in fact, the best way, we should actually use what's called the spacing effect. So where you you learn a topic, and then you come back to it later, and that sort of helps you solidify it. So one of the famous studies here is two groups of Spanish vocabulary learners who one group was given eight hours of intensive study on one day, and the other group was given four hours on one day, and, and then four hours again a month later. So they all had the same total study. Eight years later, when they were brought back, the group that had the space to practice remembered 250% more with no practice in the interim. And so I, I think we should apply that to anything we want to learn. Instead of just doing a topic and moving on from it, you don't have to do it as intensively, but you should wait until actually you've kind of forgotten it and then come back to it and do it again. And that's how you like move it into your long-term memory, basically. Oh, that's really cool. And it seems like this has drawn some connections for me with regard to, we had uh, the Corn Ferry CEO, Gary Bernison on, and we were talking about one of the, their top competency that maps to all sorts of career success is what they are calling learning agility, mm. which is sort of the, the notion of sort of knowing what to do when you don't know what to do. Mm, mm, mm. That's really important. Yeah. And so and that would make great sense because as you sort of rise in the ranks and you encounter more and more ambiguous and 
puzzlesome and I have no idea what's going on types of issues, you know, the more that you have struggled through those things, the more you're, you're raring to say, all right, well, let's, let's see how we go about figuring this out. Yeah. And I think that gets at sort of a link between the two things we were both talking about is this classic research finding that can be summarized as breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer and transfer means taking your skills and knowledge and attempting to apply them to a totally new situation that you haven't seen before. And breadth of training, predicting breadth of transfer basically means the broader your early training was, the, the diversity of the situations you were forced to face, the more likely that when you're in a totally new situation, you'll be able to wield that, that knowledge and transfer that knowledge to that new situation. I see. Okay. So now would you say that's the sort of the, the main idea or thesis behind range or, or how would you articulate it? No, I mean, I think that's just part of this, the theme of range that is, I mean, the the overall theme is sort of that society may have overvalued specialists and undervalued generalists. But the theme beneath that to me is, again, that these things that are the most efficient ways to get the quickest improvement, whether that's telling someone to specialize right away or practicing in this repetitive specialized way is often not the way to get the best long-term improvement. Yeah. Boy, there's just so many implications to that in terms of if you think about sort of what you're measuring, if you think about training or learning or or development things, it's sort of like you often don't have the luxury of checking in sort of, you know, months or years later to see how, how we did. And, and so there's, there's all kinds of systematic forces that would point us to doing just the opposite of that. Yeah, no, totally. This project in some ways started in the sports world for me, and only the introduction of range is is in the sports world. But one of the things that got me interested there is that there's this incredible drive to early specialization in youth sports. And then I went and looked at what the research says about optimal development, and it says that athletes who go on to become elite typically have what's called a sampling period, where they play a variety of sports, they gain these broader physical skills, that scaffold later learning. They learn about their interests. They learn about their abilities and they delay specializing until later than their peers who plateau at lower levels. And I was looking at that and then you see what was actually going on and sort of saying, gosh, all these forces are pushing in the opposite direction of that in the United States, in Norway, which like is probably the best sports country in the world per capita right now. There was just an HBO Real Sports on it showing that they have embraced this stuff and, and changed their sports development pipelines. But like when I was living in New York until recently, there was a U7 travel soccer team that met near me. And I don't think anybody thinks that six-year-olds can't find good enough competition in a city of nine million people mm-hmm. that they have to travel, right? It's, it's that there's these other forces at work. Like those kids are customers for whoever's running that, running that league. And so all these other forces militate against what we know about optimal development. Okay. Well, so then what do you think is to be done in terms of if, if you're a professional in a workplace and, and you want to develop well and over the long haul such that you have a, a fruitful career and, and rise and achieve all of your career dreams, what are some of the key things you recommend folks do? Yeah. So let's say you want to be an executive, which I think a lot of people would like to be at some point. LinkedIn recently did some research looking at what were the best predictors of who would become an executive. And, you know, they have these incredible sample sizes. So they did this on a half million members. And one of the best predictors was the number of different job functions that an individual had worked across in an industry. And so I think our intuition is to say, pick a job function and stick with it and drill into it and and carve your niche and get specialized. But in fact, these people who sort of probably develop a more holistic view of their industry and how to integrate different types of skills are the ones who go on to become executives. And so they are getting that breadth of training. 
And so when it comes to having to do these more complex problems, they're probably better equipped. So LinkedIn's chief economist's uh, main advice was, if you want to be an executive, work across more job functions. And, and I think that's good advice, but I think you can do things short of that in a lot of ways. Like learn what your colleagues do, learn more functions at your own work. Because our, our natural inclination is to settle into our competencies. And mm-hmm. I say we settle into a rut when we get competent enough. It, that I was talking to the economist, Russ Roberts, and he said it's a hammock because it's comfortable. That's why we don't get out of it. And I was thinking, I want to make a weird analogy here, if he'll allow me. Oh, please. When I was getting into my last book, I didn't write about this, but I was reading some scientific literature on speed typing. Okay. How fast is speed typing? Yeah, I've been looking and, at the speed typing. Continue. Really? Well, yeah. I've had a recent guest talk about how that's one of the top skills you can use to sort of accelerate your performance and all kinds of things because there's a lot of typing that's going on. And I, I'm a fan of the website key.br, I think it is, huh. which sort of helps you get fast at typing fast. So anywho, my interest is peaked. Please continue. Okay. So yeah. So the idea is like at first when you're learning typing, you you make a lot of improvement and you get to whatever you get to 60, 70, 80 words a minute, whatever you get to. And then you plateau and we pretty much all stay there. Very good, but you know, not great. And it turns out there's all these strategies that you can use to get like twice as fast. And they're not even that complicated. You know, things as simple as you'd use a metronome, you tick it up a little bit and and keep up with it, even if you make mistakes, whatever. There's a bunch of strategies to get like twice as fast. But what it suggested to me is that our natural inclination, that, that just experience will get us to a certain point, but then we stop naturally improving just with experience. We sort of settle into that, to that level of performance. And I think that's kind of true of everything. And so we're in danger as we we get more experience and get more comfortable of not developing new skills anymore. And you have to try new things. And I think that's good both because it can get you off a plateau. Like when I was on a plateau stuck with writing this book, I decided to take an online fiction writing course and it worked beautifully to get me to help with the problem I was stuck with. And so I think it works because it can help get you off a plateau, but also one of the other main ideas in range is this idea of match quality, which is the degree of fit between an individual, uh, their abilities, their interests, and the work that they do. And good match quality turns out to be very important for your your motivation, your uh, your performance. And the only way to improve your match quality, it turns out, is to try some things and then reflect on those experiences and keep sort of pinballing doing that and with an eye toward improving that match quality. So so like the Army, for example, has, has created a system called talent-based branching, where they were kind of hemorrhaging their highest potential officers uh, since basically the start of the knowledge economy, where those young officers could learn skills that they could laterally transfer into into other uh, types of work. And at first, they just threw money at those officers to try to keep them. And that didn't work at all. The, the people who were going to stay took the money, and the people who were going to go left anyway. Mm-hmm. And that was a half billion dollars. And then they started this thing called talent-based branching, where instead of saying, here's your career track, go up or out, they say, we're pairing you with this coach type figure. And here's a bunch of career tracks and just start dabbling in them. And your coach will help you reflect on how did this fit with your talents and your interests. And we'll do that so we can get you better match quality. And that's actually turned out to work better for retention because- when, when people have high match quality, they, they want to stay. So it's this saying that I quote a research in the book saying, when you get fit, it will look like grit. Because if you get a good fit, people, people work harder. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you brought up grit because that's something I wanted to talk about. You, you mm-hmm. say that there could be a problem with too much grit. What's that about? Mm-hmm. So I think for listeners who maybe have probably heard the concept of grit, I'm guessing, but the psychological construct 
came out of this survey started as a 12 question survey where half the questions award points for resilience basically and the other half for consistency of interests and so you lose points if you you know sometimes abandon a project for another one or you or you change interests and things like that and the most famous study was actually done on cadets going into west point so future army officers and, and they were trying to get through what's called beast barracks that's the u.s military academy's six-week orientation where you know it's physically and emotionally rigorous and grit that survey turned out to be a better predictor of who would make it through beast than were more traditional measures that the army used and although most of the people make it through but which is great but in the studies of like angela duckworth and her colleagues i give them a ton of credit because some of the critique i write about in the book comes like directly out of their own papers and has kind of been like lost in translation i think where those people in that study were highly pre-selected for a number of qualities absolutely got to get that senate recommendation the congressional letter that ain't easy <laughs> this is what statisticians call restriction of range problems so if you've truncated a lot of of variables by selecting a small group out of humanity. So it makes the other variables exacerbated, but they were also pre-selected for this very short term six week goal, right? And life isn't a six week goal. So when we look at the longer timeline, again, like half of these people basically leave the army the almost the day that they're allowed. And, it, and so a high ranking army official said we should defund West Point because it's quote, an institution that taught its cadets to get out of the army. And that's, that's not the case, right? And those people didn't just lose their grit. It's that they learned some things about themselves. Which tends to happen in that time period. The fastest time of personality change in your life is 18 to your late 20s, but, but it continues changing faster than people think over your life. And they decided they want to go do something else. That's why throwing money at them didn't work where talent-based branching did, because it's giving them some control over their career path and their match quality. And trying things and then changing direction is basically essential to improving your match quality. And if you're not willing to do that, then you're just hoping for luck in your match quality. And I think if we thought of our careers the way we thought of dating, right, we would never tell people to settle down so quickly. You got to stick with that gal. She's a <laughs> For some people, that might be a good idea. You got four dates. Don't quit. <laughs> I thought I was going to, you know, marry my high school girlfriend. And at the time, that seemed like a good idea. And then, you know, I had more experience in the world. And in retrospect, that wouldn't have been a good idea. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt the same way in my approach to jobs. And some jobs I thought I was going to stick with, I thought I was going to be a scientist. In retrospect, that wasn't a good idea for me, but I didn't know that until I tried that stuff. Well, and so I'm intrigued that when it comes to sampling, uh, I'd love it if you could share some of your, your favorite kind of tactical tips with regard to how can I get a lot of sampling going? So you talked about, hey, talk to work colleagues who are in a completely different functional area, maybe check out an online course. What are some other means of sampling? Yeah, I kind of take this approach from the work, someone's work I love that resonated with me because I've career changed, you know, or changed direction several times from a London business school professor named Herminia Ibarra. And she has this quote I loved, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. And basically what she means is this psychological research shows that we're not like so great at intuiting our own talents and interests before we have a chance to try stuff. We actually have to try the things and then learn about ourselves. Act and then think instead of think, then act, she says. And so for me, I kind of started a, a book of experiments where just like when I was a science grad student, I'll say, here are my skills now. Here are some things I want to learn. Here are, I think, some some weaknesses. Here's my hypothesis about how I might be able to to work on this. And then I'll go try something and see if that works. So so again, I mentioned this fiction, this online fiction writing class I took, right? So I got stuck in structuring my book. And I was said, okay, I need to do something different. And so I go take this class. And among the things I was made to do was write with only dialogue and write with no dialogue at all. 
And after doing the no dialogue at all, I went back to my manuscript and stripped a ton of quotes and replaced them with my description because I realized I was unconsciously coming from a usually doing shorter form types of things. I was leaning on quotes to convey information in a way that is not really good writing. And that's not even the improvement I was looking for. But just getting out of my normal mode of doing things gave me this huge advantage. And so I try to do that regularly. Like, you know, this people might be familiar with this research, the strength of weak ties, like your, mm-hmm. your new jobs usually come not from the people core in your network, because they're kind of doing this, you know, you know, those options already. And a lot of them are doing things similar to you. It comes from these people that you are several degrees away from, but you can get connected to. And that's what Hermini Ibarra's work shows that when people find better career fits, it always comes from some keyhole view, like they take some class or they go to some event or they meet someone at a dinner party who sort of ignites an interest. And then they start testing it little by little, getting in a little more and a little more until sometimes they make a full transition. And so I'm constantly doing those experiments with my book of experiments. And so I think everybody should constantly be doing that. What do I want to work on? Um, Here's my hypothesis for how I could do that. I'm going to go try that thing, then reflect on it and put it in your notebook and keep going forward. And, And I think even keeping that what I call that book of experiments prompts me to constantly be doing that in a proactive way, whereas there was a period when I was at Sports Illustrated, for example, where I very much settled into something I felt competent at and just did over and over for a while. And it took a while until I realized, gosh, I'm, I'm actually not adding to my skills here. And I really like that just sort of that the fun exercise you mentioned with the writing with regard to all dialogue and no dialogue, and then how that filters in forever. And it reminds me, boy, back in my AP, I guess, uh, English composition or rhetoric course in high school, our, our dear teacher, Judy Fettermeyer, we, we, that was sort of like each week, you know, that was the challenge. It was a different kind of a challenge associated with the writing. Like, okay, this time you are not to, allowed to use any to be verbs. No is, no huh. are, no was, no were. We're like, this is crazy. <laughs> I just used one. This is crazy. And, <laughs> and, and so, but sure enough, it's like, yeah, this writing, it's a little awkward, but it's when you sort of kind of, go back to being able to use some, you realize, oh boy, uh, having fewer of them sure sounds better in terms of more more active and exciting and, and lively than a bunch of is, is, and ours. Yeah. And I think it sort of just gets you out of that because the interesting thing and, and sort of almost like troubling thing to me when when I did that with the, the no dialogue and went and changed my manuscript was that until then, I didn't realize that I had been kind of unconsciously doing something I'd gotten used to. And it took doing something different for me to think about that, which is annoying. You know, I wish I were just like perceptive enough to realize that without having to get kind of knocked out of my normal mode. But but clearly I wasn't. And so I guess I'm wondering then in the whole universe of potential skills you might choose to start experimenting and dabbling in to add to your repertoire, is is there a means by which you think about prioritizing them? Or is there just sort of, hey, there's a glimmer of interest here. Let's see what happens. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, it's usually... I kind of always have some project or other that's either in some stage of development and my projects tend to be quite different. And so there's usually something related to my project that's either like an area of knowledge, maybe that where the project is kind of driving those in some ways where it's, I know I need to, that this book is going to be the biggest structural writing challenge I've ever had. Therefore, like I need to improve my skills. So it usually comes out of something that I'm otherwise doing and realizing what's the new part of that challenge. Because I will say, when I've taken on these bigger projects, like my first book was the hardest structural, you know, to organize all the information writing challenge I'd ever had. And this book was much harder than that one. 
And so I think the one thing I've done a pretty good job of is is taking on these projects that are kind of in the optimal push zone, you know, where they're not so over my head that I simply can't do it, but they are definitely stretching me to the point where I have to think about learning new things. Yeah, that's fun. And, and I'm also wondering about sort of things that you hate. <laughs> so there's one approach is there's a glimmer of interest and sort of what skill is, is sort of necessary to develop there. And I'm wondering about, because what you're talking about in terms of like sort of this uh, inefficiency or doing a wide breadth of things is such that you are, it's more frustrating and less fun sort of in the early stages, mm-hmm. but then you have some, some cool capabilities later on as a result of doing it. I guess I'm wondering to what extent would a chasing after skills that I'm just currently very bad at, I'm thinking about sort of home improvement and being handy type skills mm-hmm, right mm-hmm, now. Mm-hmm. Sort of kind of the opposite of intellectual, hey, we're having rich conversations and mm-hmm, thinking mm-hmm, about the mm-hmm. themes and summarizing them well and marketing and reaching audiences, like all, all that stuff is like very different than, okay, I got a drill and I'm trying to make this thing go there and not make a huge mess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is, is there a particular value in doing stuff you hate? I don't think you should necessarily do it over and over if you hate unless it's if you hate it unless it's really essential to to something you're doing. So when I first started doing some lab work en route to what I thought was being a scientist, my expectation was that I would love it and this was what I would do for the rest of my life. And what I found out was that that was not necessarily the case. And that was an important thing to learn. And conversely, you know, I'm a fairly new homeowner and the last <laughs> thing I would have thought I would ever be interested in was plumbing for goodness sake. And it turns out it's kind of interesting, actually, like we, you know, we had some stuff we had to fix and I started to find it sort of interesting. So I don't think you should do anything with plumbing if you hate it. But I do think you might find things that you, you know, a priori would think you wouldn't really like that when you actually try them might be more interesting than you thought and vice versa, things that you expected to love that that maybe not so much. Interesting. So it sounds like it's it's worth at least uh, an hour or two <laughs> yeah, <I> mean, <laughs> to, to see what happens. So one of the things I, I write about in range is the so-called end of history illusion, this psychology finding that we all realize that we, based on our experiences and everything, we have changed a lot in the past, but then think we will change very little in the future. And we do this at every time point in life. We, we say we've changed a lot in the past and then un- proceed to underestimate how much will change in the future. So it leads to all these like kind of funny findings. So one just sort of humorous one is because people underestimate how much their taste will change. If you ask people how much they would pay for a ticket to see their favorite band, their today favorite band 10 years from now, the average answer is $129. And if you ask how much they would pay to see today their favorite band from 10 years ago, the average answer is $80 because we underestimate how much our taste will change. And the thing is personality actually changes over the entire course of your life. And one of the predictable changes is as you become older, your openness to experience, which is one of the the big five personality traits, declines. But doing new stuff that you're not used to can actually stop that. So there are these studies where older people are in that decline phase. And this is a trait that we know is very much correlated with creativity. And these older people were trained on things like certain types of puzzles, okay? And even if they didn't get better at the puzzles, they became more open to experience. And so I think there are also these personality reasons that are associated with creativity to do stuff 
that is just outside of anything else you're doing if you want to stem that decline of openness to experience. Well, I think what's interesting about that is it might be hard to even dream up or conceive like what is that thing <laughs> because it's yeah. so not in your your current world. Do you have any tips on on how to kind of spark that prompt or stimulus in the first place? I mean, for, for me, and this has been a long running thing is I go to libraries and bookstores because those are places where I find interests that I didn't know I had. And that's why I value those places so much because nothing against Amazon, but the algorithm works in a way that it sends me things it thinks I'm interested in and that I think I'm interested in. And it doesn't send me things that I don't know I'm interested in, basically. Right. And so when I do this more natural browsing, which, by the way, I consider the willingness to go to libraries now like a competitive advantage for me because I think <laughs> a lot of people don't do it anymore. But those are the places where I find these things that I did not know I was interested in. And, and that's why I really value them. And that's why I make sure to go to those places instead of just just only ordering my my reading material and and I'm you know and I'm a big reader from Amazon well, yeah, but and I'm a I'm a huge fan of libraries, and uh, boy, now you've got me kind of excited just to see what would happen if uh, you just went kind of blind into a stack, grabbed a book, and said, "I'm going to read six pages." Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. See what happens. I mean, when I go into like a local bookstore or something like that, I don't go. Like if I really need a book right away, I know what it is. I will order it on Amazon. And if I really need it quick, I'll have it on my Kindle. But when I'm going into like bookstores, I'm not going for a particular thing. I'm going to look around and I always end up with something that I didn't really expect. That's cool. Well, can you tell me if folks are inspired, they're thinking, yes, David range, that's what's up. I'm all about it. I want to get some more skills, be more interdisciplinary. Are there any kind of, you know, watch outs or warnings or mistakes that are, are associated with this endeavor? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think people are probably pretty aware of the jack of all trades, master of none sort of syndrome. Like you don't want to get cast as someone who doesn't know anything. And, and I think it's actually pretty culturally telling that the end of that adage, jack of all trades, master of none is oftentimes better than master of one, but we've totally dropped that part. And I don't think people even know it. And I think that's because there's sort of this bias uh, against breadth. And so I do think there is that danger of signaling to other people that you don't really know anything about anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sounds dangerous. <laughs> and I think that's actually one reason why. So I was just at maybe a lot of people have heard of Motley Fool, you know, you know, Motley Fool. Mm -hmm. I was just at, at an event of theirs and there was a, a survey on a video screen and the audience could vote with their phones. And the survey was, what do you think is the average age of a founder of a breakout startup on the day of founding, not when it becomes a breakout? And the choices were 25, 35, 45, 55. And the overwhelming favorite was 25. And the answer is actually uh, based on research from MIT and the Census Bureau is 45 and a half. But we sort of think of this you know, Mark Zuckerberg, when he was 22 and famously said, young people are just smarter. And we think of like we think of Tiger Woods, even though that's not the normal, the typical model. And, and Mark Zuckerberg, it's these very dramatic stories of youthful precocity that we think of as the norm. But actually, the people who become these really successful entrepreneurs usually bounce around a fair bit first. And I think what a lot of them end up doing, you know, I describe people like this in range is they get this mix of skills that maybe other people sort of look down upon, but it leaves them with this intersection of skills that that creates new ground where they're not in direct competition with someone. They're trying to do something new and they have to create their own ground and they often become entrepreneurs sometimes because they have to. And that can be really good, but that can also be really challenging because you can kind of end up, and I think especially so in this era of LinkedIn, which I think is a great tool, 
but also allows HR people to make a much more narrowly defined job and still have a ton of candidates. Mm -hmm. And so in range, I talk about the work of Abby Griffin, who studies so-called serial innovators who make these repeated major contributions to their companies. And her advice to HR people is basically don't define your job too narrowly because you're going to accidentally screen these people out because their traits are like they've often worked across domains. They have a wide range of interests. They read like more widely than uh, their colleagues. They have a need to talk to people in other disciplines. They like to use analogies from other disciplines. They often have hobbies that seem like they might be distracting. But that those are the traits of those people. And her concern is that HR people will see them as scattered and not as focused on any particular area. So I think the real concern is of the signal that might be sent to people who are in a position of making personnel decisions. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. Well, David, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. I think specialization made a ton of sense in um, when we were more of an industrial economy, when people were facing similar challenges repeatedly. And and that was when those army officers did not move into the outside of the army with nearly as much frequency because other companies, specialists were facing the same challenges and they were ahead and you couldn't catch up. But with the in the knowledge economy, some of the patent research I, I look at in range shows that it's basically just since like the late 80s forward where the contributions of more generalist inventors. So th this is in this research, the generalists are defined as people who their work is spread across a larger number of technology classes as classified mm -hmm. by the patent office, whereas the specialists drill more into a small number or, or a single technology class. And both of these types of people make contributions, but the contributions of those people who are broader have been increasing with the knowledge economy. And so I don't think this has always been true that the generalists have these special or broader people have these special contributions to make. But I think it's sort of a function of the fact that with our communication technology, information is rapidly and thoroughly disseminated. And there are many more opportunities for combining knowledge in new ways as opposed to just creating some some totally new piece of knowledge. Yeah, that makes sense. And now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I love that quote from Herminia Barra, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. That's one that's like really stuck in my head because I don't totally know what I'm going to do next. And I'm thinking about things. And so that's really affected the approach that I'm going to take. All right. And how about a favorite book? Right now, I would say that my favorite book, gosh, I read a lot. So this changes from time to time. But right now, I would say my favorite book is probably War and Peace, the Anthony Briggs translation. So I read multiple translations when I got really into it. And I didn't realize I was just reading it because like I was going through this this website that aggregates all great book lists and and I was trying to just like go down some of the greatest books. And it is a novel, you know, in the form of a novel, it's actually Tolstoy's refutation of the great man theory of history. And he uses Napoleon as the main character and argues and he does like some journalistic reporting on uh, those events and argues that, well, Napoleon was really an effect, not a cause of these larger forces, basically. And so he has these historical essays and the story. And the story is writing is amazing. But I also found that argument really interesting. And that led me to read this essay by the philosopher Isaiah Berlin based on War and Peace, where Isaiah Berlin uses these two types of characters that he analyzes in, in War and Peace, the foxes and the hedgehogs. The hedgehogs know one big thing and the foxes know many little things. And those hedgehog and fox constructs were then borrowed by Philip Tetlock, a psychologist, to do the work that's featured in my chapter 10 of people who develop the best judgment about the world and about political and economic trends, who know many little things instead of one big thing. And so it was really cool 
to, you know, that research I was already interested in to see in War and Peace sort of where those ideas of the, of the fox and the hedgehog via Isaiah Berlin's philosophy essay sort of came from. So not only did I enjoy the book for its own right, but it really made me think about some modern research in, a, in an interesting way. And how about a favorite tool? Something that helps you be awesome at your job. Oh my goodness. I would die if I didn't have Searchlight on. That's why I have to be a Mac user because I basically, the organization system I use is writing lots of words in various things that I think I would search if I wanted to find it. And so I probably use Searchlight 500 times a day. And a favorite habit? Running, if you count that. Like I'm a very avid runner. Oh, sure thing. Is there a key nugget that you share often that tends to get sort of quoted back to you frequently? In my first book, The Sports Gene, there's like, I did some data analysis of, of body types and this one part that mentions that if you know an American man between the ages of 20 and 40 who's at least seven feet tall, then there's a uh, 17% chance he's a current NBA player. <laughs> and yeah, people mention that to me a lot. <laughs> I, I just think it's funny that it's a very specific numerical tidbit <laughs> is what people are sticking with. <laughs> yeah, no, but people were totally into that. Yeah. I'm really bad at predicting the things from my own books that people are going to like latch on to versus the things I latch on to the most. It's kind of an interesting experience. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? DavidEpstein.com is my website, and I'm David Epstein on Twitter. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. I mean, I think if I could really talk to someone, it would be managers and say, do your own form of talent-based branching where you allow people to explore some of their other interests and talents and help them reflect on those experiences. I was recently at the podcast for The Ringer, Bill Simmons. He, he runs probably the most popular sports podcast in the world. And he used to be ESPN's most popular writer. Then he did something on HBO and that kind of failed. And now he started his own company. And it was one of the happiest workplaces I have ever been in. And one of the interesting things was people who were hired to edit like online articles, some of them have become like seriously famous in the sports world podcast personalities with huge followings. And that's because once they're in that company, he'll say like, okay, come try on a podcast for a little bit and we'll see how it goes. And, and it seems like people have an opportunity to basically try their hand at whatever the company has to offer. And a couple of the people who came in in these more kind of quotidian jobs have become like famous. And, and it was a happy workplace. So I, so I think he's really onto something with sort of letting people try their hand at things in a way that like doesn't really damage anything too much if it doesn't go well. That's cool. Well, David, thanks for this. I wish you tons of luck with range and all your adventures. Thank you very much. I really appreciated David's wisdom and I really appreciate our sponsors. Check them out. I really like the way David used the word scaffold a couple times, and that just for me conjures to mind images of when folks are doing a renovation on something. And I'm thinking, I remember being at a church where it seemed like for the longest time, nothing looked any different at all, but they were just building up this really tall structure that folks could, you know, climb up onto and work and operate with. And so it was that way for a really long time. And then all of a sudden, whoa, it's like we were done. Done with the renovation. It became real zippy once people had the, the infrastructure in place to, to do the painting, to do the maneuvering around with the walls and the ceilings way high up there. And a lot of the work up front was building the scaffolding, which in fact made things look uglier instead of better for the renovation. And it didn't seem like they were making a whole boatload of progress, but they were equipped to, to do everything real zippily after that. And I just find that a helpful metaphor in terms of, all right, David's got some real research that shows the power of, of doing that broad, 
frustrating sort of learning, training, new different experiences, and then reaping the benefits that come from it. So I found that kind of encouraging when I find I'm doing something and I'm just real not good at it. I think, oh, I must be building some great scaffolding because I'm not seeing a lot of results. So that's what's going on here is I'm building invisible uh, scaffolding, which will turn into faster visible results later on. So Hope you find some encouragement from from that, from David. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced. It's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep453. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest, Judy Ringer. She's got some wisdom from Aikido. She is sharing and applying to the realm of dealing with interpersonal conflicts and conversations. So I hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 